This morning, there are two readings from the Gospel of John. First from chapter 4 and second from chapter 19. From John 4, verses 5 through 14, we read the story of Jesus' encounter with a woman at Jacob's well in Samaria. Jesus came to the city of Samaria, called Sychar, near the fields that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. She said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus replied, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Turning now to John 19, we read of the final moments of Jesus's three hours nailed to the, to the cross. Knowing that all was now complete and to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. A bowl of wine vinegar was there, so the soldiers put a sponge full of the sour wine on a stalk of hyssop plant and held it to his mouth. The word of the Lord. So I remind you that, to put your microphone on, <laughs> it works a little better when it's closer to your mouth. I remind you that in this series, we're looking at the words Jesus spoke from the cross. We call them seven last words. They're, they're sentences, um, for the most part, and um, Three of them are found in Luke's gospel, three are found in John's gospel, and one is found uh, jointly in Matthew and Luke. They overlap. Um, and Brenna and I have been suggesting that it's not so much that Jesus is simply referring to his last words, as in his last words and testament from the cross, as much as these words spoken from the cross are actually words that Jesus and themes of Jesus throughout the whole of his life. They carry meaning and significance far beyond this one moment or than what the words themselves speak. And that is certainly the case in this word today. What we describe as the fifth word is the only human expression of Jesus' physical suffering while he's on the cross. It comes near the end of the three hours that he endured there the effect of 
his wounds inflicted upon him in the scourging and then the crown of thorns, his being nailed to the cross. And uh, from what I've heard, just the position of your body um, on a cross, the, the agony and pain that comes with that has taken its toll. We can only imagine such torture and pain that his body suffered. Yet the need he verbalizes is simply this, I thirst. Trust me, I would have cried out a few other uh, expressions besides I thirst. And what this does for us is it reminds us of Jesus' dual nature, that he is fully God and fully human. And he identifies with us fully in our humanity, in our need. By reporting these words of Jesus, John, the writer, seems to have more in mind than just the words Jesus spoke as some need to quench his thirst. John adds this phrase with the saying, Jesus, in saying this, Jesus fulfilled what the scriptures said. And what John has in mind is clearly taken from Psalm 69, verse 21, and I'm going to read starting at verse 20. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Perhaps John also thought of this verse from Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. We also cannot overlook the irony of John's picture of Jesus being served the soldier's wine. Recall the first sign of Jesus' miracle, which took place when he turned water into wine when he was with his disciples attending a wedding at Cana of Galilee. The steward who tasted of this wine, now mind you, in, those, in that culture in those days, a wedding would have gone on for days. It wasn't just a single day, um, hour-long ceremony or something. It would, it would be a, um, almost a week's worth of celebration. So you must have enough wine for your guests. And as the wine um, started to um, uh, disappear or be gone or extinguished, what's the word I'm looking for? There, see, you know what it is. So his mother comes and says they're, they're running out of wine. And, and they didn't have bottled water back then. Uh, the water in those days was not that good. And um, so wine was preferable over water. And so he turns the water into wine. And the steward tastes of this, and he goes to the bridegroom and says, I've never heard of this before. Most people will serve their guests the very best wine early. And then, the, you know, as, the, as they've quenched their thirst later in the day, then you have the cheaper stuff, the box stuff. <laughs> but you've saved the best for last. Jesus gave others the very best wine, but he is, in his moment of agony, is served the cheapest kind of sour wine the lowest rank of soldiers drank while on duty. 
Or consider this, the many times Jesus in John's gospel speaks of water. Uh, Emma read for us from the woman at the well in chapter 4, and he says that she could have access to living water that would be available in abundant supply. Then in chapter 6, he said to those who believe in him, they would not go hungry and they would never thirst. And to those who had attended the festival of tabernacles reported in chapter 7, Jesus spoke to the people and said they could satisfy their thirst forever by believing in him. They would have rivers of living water springing up from within themselves. This to me is what makes the story, the gospel story, so stunning. A story unlike any other in its message. A story full of horror and awe. That includes your story and mine. A story of wonder that can take your breath away. And it follows along these lines. For us to receive Jesus' gift of living water, of eternal life, of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence within us, Jesus himself must thirst. Jesus first must give up what he has, who he is, and his very life so that we might have or benefit from what God offers to us through him to be made holy as he is holy, to share in life with God forever. This exchange, this substitution, if you will, this sacrifice on the part of Jesus is what delivers us from the consequences of sin and death. According to John, this is what Jesus meant when he said, I thirst. Jesus takes on the sin of the world so that we might be relieved of its burden and its judgment on us. He goes without quenching his thirst so that we might drink of God's goodness forever. Who can turn away from a story like that? Who can say that that's of no value or significance to me? If they truly heard it for what it is, I think they would be compelled at the cross, we hear people say, he saved others, why couldn't he save himself? Well, the answer is, of course he could. But this is the kind of story we all know too well. Where we look out for ourselves, where we do for ourselves, because no one else is going to. Where we better get ahead, we better take what's ours, we better even take a little more than that to make sure. Because who's going to look out for us? We're on our own. We have to do that for ourselves. Get all you can while you can. We know that story. How many times do you hear a story where someone gives up their all so that you might have what they have? Jewish tradition said that if one person, only one person in all of Israel kept the law to the letter, then the whole people of Israel would be saved. The whole people of, of God would be made right with God. And that's precisely what Jesus does. He is the only one who 
is without sin, who is obedient to God, who trusts God fully the whole of his life. And you would think that the leadership of Israel would be pleased with that news. But instead, in chapter 11, we hear the chief priests and Pharisees in a meeting of the Sanhedrin had started to call into question Jesus' popularity and his claims. And this is what we hear them say. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come, take away both our temple and our nation. Well, you sort of have to remind them. The Romans are already there. They occupy your land. They control you already. And they could step on you like a bug. That's what they were saying. And then we hear the high priest Caiaphas speak up and say, you do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And John says, he spoke truer words than he knew because he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. As with the crown of thorns and the mocking purple robe, John is saying this is all part of the truth of this story. This is how Jesus must do what only he can do. Or as N.T. Wright said it so well, Jesus must come to the place where everyone else is. The place of thirst, the place of shame, and the place of death. This is the fulfillment of Scripture, God's will for the world, and what Jesus repeatedly refers to as his time. All throughout John, you hear him say, my time has not yet come. Just as the turning of the water into wine was the first sign of Jesus' glory, John expects us to see the moment when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, his crucifixion as the final, the ultimate sign of God's glory. And if you count in John, it would be the seventh sign that you would then see that this is God's doing so that we might benefit from it. God's glory shining through this horrific act. How do you take that in? How do you understand um, such a story of redemption, such a story of love and sacrifice of which you play a part? Well, more than a recital, that's what this meal becomes for us each and every time we celebrate it. It's not just a recital of the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed, but it commemorates the significance of Jesus' death on the cross and what it meant. And it in itself becomes a summary of the gospel. We eat this bread as if it were Jesus' body, and we drink this cup as if it were his blood, because we do this to remember he gave his life so that we might have life in him. He thirsted so that we never have to ever again.
think about how we use that phrase. I thirst, sort of like our sense of ambition. I thirst for recognition. I thirst for for um, forgiveness. I thirst for uh, financial stability. I thirst to be accepted. Whatever it is that compels you, that leaves you feeling the sense of, I must keep working at it. I must strain and put in every effort in order to satisfy this unquenched desire or need in my life. Jesus says, you have to do that no longer. You don't have to be on your own. You don't have to do for yourself. I will do it for you. All you need to do is receive of this bread and this cup as a reminder that I've given my life for you and you have no need to thirst or hunger again. For the one who believes in me will never hunger. The one who trusts in me will never thirst. That's what Jesus was referring to when he took bread that night. And having given thanks, he broke it and offered it to his disciples and said, this is my body given for you. So when you eat this, remember me. And then later in the meal, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So when you drink this, remember me. Remember that I gave my life so that you might have life to the fullest. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. For those who need to have their thirst quenched and their hunger satiated. With gratitude and thanksgiving, let's receive them. And first, we will have a song of reflection.